Bundled savings vary by state and are not available in every state. Saving up to 25% is the countrywide average of the maximum available savings off the home policy. All state vehicle and property insurance company and affiliates, Northbrook, Illinois. This Thunder Country weather update is brought to you by Albia Ford. They can beat anyone's price on a new car by $1,000. See for yourself why Albia Ford is different from all the rest. For your Tuesday, expect sunny skies, a warm high around 55 degrees. Wednesday's high around 56 and some rain chances coming into our Thursday. Now it's time for Just Start Talking on Thunder Country. Brought to you by People's State Bank and Albia. Just Start Talking is a community service program from KIIC. And now, live from high atop the square in downtown Albia, Just Start Talking. With me on my installment of Just Start Talking this week, I got an individual named Tom Rooney. If you know the name, you know what he does. But Tom, thank you so much for being with me here on KIIC. Well, thank you for inviting me to be on. You know, Tom, the first time I was able to see you in action was at the Iowa State Fair, and I thought, my goodness, what a what a incredible ring man you are. And we'll get to that later on, but I was just intrigued with the way you were able to record a bit with the auctioneer as it went through there. But we'll get to that in a little bit. Tell us a little bit about you, yourself, in terms of growing up. Where where did you grow up at, and and uh, what were some of the things that got you into agriculture? So I grew up up here in a third-generation family farm, which I'm still on today. I'm in my grandfather's house, and we were row croppers back there as I grew up, and I was super interested in the cattle. My grandpa had a small herd, and I always liked going out with them, and, and then we got to age to be able to show, and he gave me a calf and took it to the county fair. It got last in class, and uh, my dad was always very competitive. He said, we're not going to do that again, so <laughs> we hooked up with a neighbor named Greg Morsey, which back in the day, the Morseys won most of the county fairs around here, and he came in and, and taught me how to pick one and work on one and just was a leader for me for a number of years as back when I was sophomore, freshman in high school, I guess. So tell us where where that was at, in Iowa, but where? Yeah, it's about 20 miles north and east of Des Moines. Uh, no town right here. I went to school at Bondurant Farrar and my kids went to school at Bondurant Farrar. So that gives you kind of a location. Absolutely. Uh, close to all the action and not that far away from the Iowa State Fair. I liked what your dad said. We're not going to do that again, <laughs> coming in last in class. And, uh, no. But, you know, a lesson learned at an early age, you know, that competition, that competitiveness really gets into you and sticks with you as a farm kid, doesn't it? It really does. It really does. The competition, We, uh, my dad really liked the grain farming side of it. And so he competed in the yield contest for corn and soybeans and all kind of that type of thing. He was never a cattleman per se. He liked the row crop and I liked the cattle. So we were able to diversify a little bit. Yeah, that master corn grower contest is very highly competitive. And, and you know, you just take a small area. Back in the day, they 
kind of said, well, it looks like this is the best place to do it. But now with the GPS and drones, they can say, we're going to go to a certain location in this farm and, and get the best yields out of it. Uh, I don't know if that's cheating or not, but it is kind of interesting to see how that contest has evolved. I never even thought about that. I guess we just used to go out and cut a land out, and, and the guy would measure it all out by by a roller and that type of thing, and then you'd go, and that was it. But I, I've seen these new combines where, yeah, that would be quite an advantage, wouldn't it? <laughs> all right, so uh, you got us through high school. Uh, let's go ahead and talk about your young adult life in terms of how you continue to be with the uh, cattle industry. Yeah, I've got to throw in one one thing here. Uh, in that high school time, bought a Hereford steer for four hundred dollars off a off a neighbor that came out of the Sand Hills, and he went on to uh, be champion Hereford at Exarbon out there in Nebraska. Sold to the Hereford Steakhouse for fifteen hundred dollars. Oh, so, things things have changed quite a bit since uh, nineteen seventy two. But even at that, at that time, that was a lot of money, and especially out there at Exarbon, that is even more so cattle country uh, in some people's aspects and minds than Iowa. But yeah, that was phenomenal. A lot of uh, nostalgia with that Exarbon show that even continues today, and it's nice to see those large livestock shows that continue to happen all across the United States I wouldn't say it's nonstop, but it certainly has continued to roll on, which is a good thing for our youth to continue to go to those shows and and uh, have their animals on exhibit. Oh, for sure. And the work that they put in and, and that type of thing year-round now. They have shows. There used to be, you know, your county fairs in Exarbon, Kansas City, and Iowa State Fair and, and Denver, and that was about it. But now there's shows constantly so yeah it, it's really good for kids what about your experience at the iowa state fair in terms of exhibiting did you yourself go ahead and take the halter into the big pavilion oh yeah yeah for for a number of years well i guess shortly after high school i um i stayed back on the farm to start with and that's a, and that wasn't quite enough so went up to south dakota state for a year and a half and tried out for baseball up there and that was all going pretty good and then my granddad died so they suggested or we talked about it and decided to come back to the farm and, and help out there and i think it was that was 1975 so in 77 my dad bought me two limousine heifers at uh leland dudley sale and that was the uh, start of my limousine program. And uh, started building a herd from that. That was part of my pay for, for farming with him is he bought me them two. And I took them two first calves out of them two cows to the Iowa Beef Expo, which still goes on today. But back then it was quite a bit smaller than just getting, getting in its infancy. And uh, I know I sold one of them heifers to Oklahoma, and I'm not sure what happened to the bull, but that really put the bug in me. And from there on, I started uh, a limousine herd that I just finally sold out last year. It's kind of cool how yeah. things happen in, in a small increments, just with two head, and you grew that 
I was in the same boat. I started off with two Hampshire gilts, but then it grew. But, uh, yeah, it's kind of cool that you went to the Iowa Bees Expo, which will be happening very soon in the month of February. But, yes, uh, the Beef Expo is a staple on the circuit, and it is incredible to see all of the breeds get involved with that Iowa Beef Expo now. Oh, it is, and for myself, it was the really the main place I sold my animals. Uh, I'd have 8 to 10 to 12 of them there each year, bulls and heifers both, and it it was a time there at Beef Expo that they started limousine pulled Congress, and it was the biggest limousine sale in the nation um, there for a number of years. And had animals, I had a couple that would sell for $10,000, and that's, that's really, you know, in the late 70s and 80s, the row crop thing was not very good. It was quite a struggle, and them animals going to the Iowa Beef Expo is really what uh, got me by. I'm talking with Tom Rooney. If you recognize the name, he is a well-known ringman in auctions all around the great state of Iowa. And Tom's with us here on Just Start Talking this week. As you ventured into that limousine breed, you had to think about uh, what you said, starting out with just a few. One of the things that some people have talked about is EPDs. Tell us your take when it first came out about those EPD numbers and how they related to to the limousine breed. Yeah, I mean, in the infancy of EPDs, nobody had had them numbers. We were selling them on visual, on wait for day of age, that type of thing. Had them numbers, weaning uh, ratios and such. Then the EPDs came in and it was really hard for people to understand them. It was hard for the breeders to understand them. And it was something that we might say wasn't accepted wholeheartedly by a lot of us at the time. Um, and we continued to do it as we did with visual and, and like I said, the other ratios we used. But over time, um, like everything else, you became accustomed to it, and then you had to really start using them because the buyers, they were educating themselves, and they came to us, and, and that's what they were looking for. They wanted to know what the weaning weight ratio was, what the birth weight ratio EPD was. And so we implemented them and used them, and they've been a tremendous tool uh, to this day. Education plays into it no matter what. I get a chuckle out of high school kids when they graduate. They say, thank goodness, I, I'm done with school and then lo and behold they're really in reality they're just learning because they'll be uh, exposed to educational items the rest of their life i appreciated the fact that what you talked about uh, you know starting in 1977 the farm crisis was just starting to happen uh, during that time and you mentioned that the crop farming was very very difficult diversification is what helped out a lot in terms of people having a little bit of soybeans, a little bit of corn, a little bit of hay, a little Mm -hmm. bit of uh, this animal or that animal. And it is what really got a lot of people through that hard time, right? Oh, absolutely. For our thing, anyhow, I mean, them late 80s and stuff, got married, had a couple kids. And, I mean, we're just scraping by. And luckily enough, I had bought a 
black cow, black limousine cow out of Canada. And at that time, she was, we didn't know that she was homozygous pole and homozygous black because no calves had ever been born out of her out of a full blood or a purebred. And after I bought her, then she was already flushed and a set of calves were up in Canada and they all came out black and they all came out pole. So that put a lot of value into that cow. So I decided to sell her uh, in that time period. And uh, it was up in Minnesota at the, I'd uh, been the junior heifer show uh, there in St. Paul. And um, that cow went on to bring $104,000 that sale. And that really, really kicked it in there in the farm crisis that we were able to use that to get by. Interesting story for sure. And of course, for our listeners, homozygous pole means the animal will never have horns, the offspring, and, and they will always be black. And a lot of people, just like color of an implement, they wanted a black beef animal. And that was going to be from that dam, always going to be black. And that was a great uh, attribute for that female that you had to on the farm to crank out those black calves that'll never have horns and that was a good thing and with cab coming in at that time certified angus beef you wanted to be black hided for when you went to the sales that they would bring a premium and yes that helped out as well go ahead and tell me about your relationships now as you moved in with auctioneers and customers and how did you get into being part of those high-profiled auctions? Okay, so it's still tough times, and this was the year of the flood, 1993, and we lost 800 acres down on the bottom from the flood. And so I had my animals that year at the Iowa Beef Expo, and Lori Leonard, who had just bought her, who was a limousine person herself, but also worked for Iowa Farmer Today, and they had just bought the Midwest Marketer magazine, came to the Iowa Beef Expo to hire either Dick Carmichael or Kirby Getz. They were one of two of the famous ringmen, and they she would go try to hire them away from their other publications and get them to go into the startup. And naturally, they, they said, no, Lori, this ain't going to work for us now. We're already established. We'll go on this way. So I had known Lori for a number of years, and we were actually having a beer in the bullpen, and she looked over and she said, Tom, you would be good at this job. You could come sell advertising for Midwest Marketer, Iowa Farmer Today, and be their ringman. And and I was sitting there in my coveralls, I remember, and I said, no, Lori, I'm going to be this cattleman. I'm going to keep raising these things. And I went home and talked to my dad, and we looked at the financials, and I uh, changed my mind pretty quick. <laughs> I called I called Lori back up, and I said, Lori, I, I'd like to give this a try. And um, if that was in February, and by that spring, I talked to Steve DeWitt. He hired me on the spot, and we went to work, and I called. At that time, I was an established breeder, so I knew all the ringmen. I knew the auctioneers. I was buddies with them. And I knew a lot of the, the sales because of being in the limousine business. So I called Jerry Wolf and Roger Dieter and these guys out of state and some of the ones in state. And they said, 
well, yeah, let's give it a try. And they put in a little ad, and I'd go. And my brother-in-law was one. Mark Smith was one of the really good ring men in the in the country. And him and two auctioneers gathered me up, and we traveled together, not being paid, just learning the business, and traveled together that whole spring, and then some in the fall. And I'd get in and I'd work at the end of the sales. And um, then these auctioneers and, and other ringmen would say, you did good here, you didn't do so good here, come back here and watch how we do this. And um, so I spent almost a year selling advertising and getting paid that way, but not not as a ringman. Um, that was all just on-hand training. And um, after that, I picked it up pretty good and started doing it and continued to work with now with Dimford auctioneers, some that are still here and some that have passed away. And I just absolutely loved that end of the business, meeting the people, traveling to their farms, seeing their cattle, learning. I mean, when I started, some of these kids were really young, and I've been to their weddings, the kids' weddings, and I've been to funerals of guys that we've lost over the years. But then operations all came on and were taken over by the younger generation and watched them change with all the different tools that people have now. Yeah, it was it was out of necessity that I did it, and it turned out to be the best thing that could ever happen to me. Wow. Going back to the selling ads, some people say, I can't do that. I can't ask people for money. On the other hand, there's a saying that says advertisement doesn't cost, it pays. And from that standpoint, you have to trust that your customer sees that opportunity, that they will get something for that investment that they make in that advertising. And with Midwest Marketer, that magazine was just really something uh, in terms of getting out there. The publication went to a lot of people for them to grasp that and see where their money advertisement was going. Did you ever hear how the Midwest Marketer got started? No. Well, I don't know if everybody would remember this, but there was a time when the Des Moines Register had all the cattle ads in it, all the sale barn ads in it, and that type of thing. Sure. And they decided to run a PETA ad on the back page of the Des Moines Register. I do remember Sunday that. On a, yeah, I do on remember a weekend. That. Yes, and it was Jeffrey Dahmer and PETA was on there talking about how Jeffrey Dahmer compared to eating people. Um, and the cattle industry just went like, what in the hell just happened? So down in Bloomfield, Iowa, the schoolies started. They called all the sale barns. The sale barns pulled, pulled their advertising out of the Des Moines Register, and that was the start of the Midwest Marketer, a little publication, um, which is, it was book size back then, very much smaller. And basically all the sale barns went into that publication, and that's how they sent it out. They got the buyer's list from the sale barns and, um, and, and started their own sale barn paper. 
Sometimes out of necessity, things crop up and come to fruition because of something that uh, went bad. So that was a great story there. Thank you, Tom. Yeah, that's that's Marketer. And uh, then I know Mike Thornton worked there for a while when it was owned still by the schoolies. And he tried to bring in more production sales and livestock sales and that kind of stuff. And he did a good job with it. And then... He started his own magazine called Livestock Plus. Iowa Farmer Today then bought Midwest Marketer from the schoolies, and that's when I went to work for Midwest Marketer. I'm not even sure of the year, well, or 94. And then Mike and I actually traveled for the first, I don't know, five to seven years together. Uh, One of us would pay for the hotels. Another one would pay for the gas. And we kept down our cost doing that, and we built both publications at the same time, basically together. And we made herd visits together, and we learned a lot together. So that's how, because, you know, when you first start out with the magazine and you got to prove it to everybody, you've got to grow it pretty fast. And to do that, you have to go out and get what I call the bigger producers to get in there. And then the other, everybody else says, well, they're in there. I need to be in there. And yes. that was the that was what I I kind of used, and then I really I could see Midwest Marketer working, and then it became easy to sell um, because it was really getting to the right people, and they were getting responses. And once you have a good feeling about your product, and you know it's helping people, and you're meeting people, it was it was a lifestyle for me. Um, be gone every weekend. Boy, you'd leave Friday and get back Sunday night, um, and then you'd sell ads all week and take care of your own farm, and then you'd do it again. (laughs) It gave you a sense of purpose, that's for sure. Back in that day, we didn't have cell phones. We didn't have fax machines. I remember my brother-in-law getting a fax machine that I was able to use then to at least send stuff into the office. Otherwise you were communicating just by ring-up phones. And you were waiting for people to come in at night to call them to see about selling them an ad when they're tired and grumpy. <laughs> <laughs> um, so so it, it has changed so much. I mean, maybe we would do 50, 40, 50 sales back then, you know, in comparison to I don't know what I would do now or what I would do when when I retired there, a couple hundred, maybe 400. I don't know. Wow. I'm talking with Tom Rooney. He's a well-known ring man here in the great state of Iowa. Tom, the first time I saw you was at the great Iowa State Fair at the Sale of Champions. Tell us a little bit about your style, because that's what drew me to say this guy is really into the sale. You've got a unique perspective of calling a bid and how did that come to be well i've always been outgoing and i had a thought i i'd watched a lot of ringmen over my time and the one that probably interested me the most was um john mentz john mentz had an overwhelming high pitch scream when he turned in a bid and everybody knew that mentz was was in there was no question uh, because of that high-pitched squeal, 
And there was other ringmen that I watched and then took a little bit here and a little bit there. And Al Conover, one of the auctioneers, just said, give it your all, Rooney, when you're out there and make them people know that you're there for them. And that's kind of what I did. So, yes, I was one of the more active ringmen that had fun with my crowd and with the other ringmen and sometimes with the auctioneers. Yeah, and I, I concur. And more you, I, you've got to have a repertoire and a, and a relationship between everybody that's in there. Yeah, the buyers and the sellers, you've got to bring them together. And if you can just, and I, I'd have people, mother, bring a 10-year-old kid down, says, he wants to be like you someday. He wants to do what you do. And I'm like, well, that's cool. And so the more you've got stuff like that, the more you wanted to continue to do it. No doubt. No doubt about it. Just real quick, when we're talking about getting that bid, your hearing, your listening, and your vision has to all coincide and come together because you're watching those bidders, you're listening to the auctioneer, and when that bid goes up at a very rapid pace, you have to be thinking in terms of how that buyer is going to anticipate. And you help out sometimes by giving hand signals to them to know where that dollar amount is. You have paid a lot of attention, haven't you? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Okay, so every auctioneer is different. Everyone sounds different. Everyone has a different cadence about them. So you've got to learn your auctioneers. You've got to learn their style. And basically, the ringmen, the auctioneers reading off numbers. The ringmen are the ones taking the bid and directing, directing the auctioneer. So you've got to be aware. There's usually four of us ringmen. You've got to be aware of each other ringman and what they're doing and who they have in. And then you might have two or three guys that are bidding on the same animal, too. So you listen to the auctioneer. You're keeping three guys straight, and you're trying to pay attention to what the other three ringmen are doing. So it's guess I guess what I'd tell you now is how things have kind of changed. Like I said, I when I started, I wanted to do it right. So I rode with different ringmen and different auctioneers for around a year. Now to learn it, to do it right, to do all that. And and what we're seeing a change is now you'll see a guy that hires on and in three weeks, he's standing ringside. And to me, that's not, they're not quite ready to go, but that's what they need to do. And um, Iowa Farmers Day and Midwest Marketer hasn't done that. They've hired seasoned ringmen. Besides me, I guess, when we started. The so that's a little bit of a change. Technology has changed the auctioneering a little bit. It's kind of cool to see the Internet uh, have a big say in that with bidding online. And, of course, the cattle at these sales sometimes are on a big screen TV. They've been photographed. They've been videotaped. And now you don't even need to see the animal when it goes through the auction. It speeds the process up. Talk about that. Oh, yeah. Over the years, you had to have a, a big crew out back bringing the animals up, getting them all in line, getting them all in order to the sale order, so you've got doors swinging in and out, animals, you know, not wanting to come in and out, so that stalls them down, and it was a hard change for a lot of people that wanted to see them in the ring, see them on the move, but we found 
that even the the tamest animal could come in there into the ring and get spooked and and cause trouble and and then not bring near the value that it should have brought. And so a number of factors played into it. People getting hurt that were in the ring or back behind, getting these cattle ready to, to come in. And now they've switched it over to, to video. On the Cyclone Sports Network, from Learfield, welcome to the Cyclone Coaches Corner, powered by Chevron Renewable Energy Group. Also brought to you by High V, who proudly supports the Iowa State Cyclones. High V, where there's a helpful smile in every aisle. Now, live, here's the voice of the Cyclones, John Walters. Welcome to the Cyclone Coaches Corner, fueled by Chevron Renewable Energy Group. Fueling your game for a lower carbon tomorrow makes you a winner today. The voice on the open called for the voice of the Cyclones, John Walters, but we are without John. John was with, obviously, the Iowa State men's team for that crazy game down in Baylor on Saturday, and the Cyclones have stayed in the state of Texas. They'll take on the Longhorns tomorrow night, so... uh, I'm Rod Bodholt, Jeff Grummer side beside me, and we're co-hosting today. Bill Finley joining us at the at the top of the program. We'll have Ryan Harklaw on about halftime of the program today, about 45 minutes in, and we'll discuss all things Iowa State football. But, uh, Coach, we're happy to have you join us today, and uh, obviously uh, a tough one for you guys down in Central Florida, uh, a game where it seemed like it, it took you some time to find a good rhythm, and uh, you did have a seven-point lead in the third quarter, but they pulled away and scored a bunch of points in the second half. Your thoughts as you've had a, a chance to look back at the game and see what you can learn from it? No, I, that's exactly right. You know, I think we did have some struggles. Um, I, I think the biggest thing is uh, the the three things that, that stood out is the first time that we've really struggled to rebound all season, and we just seem to be a step slow uh, in that area. Uh, they hit some tough shots in the second half. Uh, they beat us off the dribble a little bit. And then offensively, you know, we had some shots that, that we need to make. And, um, you 